Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to be speaking with William Anthony Hay, Professor of History at Mississippi State University, about his newest book, Lord Liverpool, A Political Life. Uh, Professor Hay, uh, welcome to um, New Books in History. Uh, Let me first off ask you, what is the primary thesis of your book? The book argues that Lord Liverpool was one of the more significant uh, figures of the early 19th century. He's an overlooked uh, leader. Uh, someone else had already taken the title, the forgotten prime minister. And yet Liverpool had a profound influence on um, on early 19th century British history and also on European history more broadly. He was a pivotal figure in bringing Britain through the transition after the Napoleonic Wars, as well as guiding Britain through the upheavals unleashed by the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Uh, why do you think, um, I know you go a little bit in, into this uh, <laughs> subject at the end of the book, but why do you believe that Lord Liverpool dropped out of the collective memories of um, uh, the Tory party, as well as, until recently, most of the historians of the same? Well, there's a big question or big issue about historical memory. Why do we remember some figures and overlook or forget others? I think the key to Lord Liverpool dropping out of memory is twofold. One is that he didn't have a personal following committed to promoting his memory. Uh, There were Canningites, there were Peelites, Wellington, uh, who was a member of Liverpool's cabinet and also Liverpool's partner in the military partner in the latter period of the Napoleonic Wars, Wellington had his own, uh, maybe I should say, coterie or group of, of, of followers and enthusiasts of supporters who were committed to keeping Wellington's reputation and memory alive. Liverpool didn't have that. Liverpool also suffered from being a figure of the the last great figure of the, the long 18th century, that he was a, he was an upholder, a defender of uh, Britain's 18th century constitution, the balanced constitution in church and state. After the 1832 Reform Act and after Catholic emancipation and the end of the Test and Corporation Acts, two measures that changed the role and position of the Church of England in public life, that made Liverpool seem like a man of a different era. Some of the issues of Liverpool's time, particularly upholding the Church of England, uh, were out of date by the later 1830s, 1840s. 
And Liverpool wasn't a charismatic figure himself. Uh, one biographer describes Liverpool as, as having been buried by uh, a three-volume edition of his uh, Life and Times edition that drew heavily on his correspondence and personal papers. So he wasn't a person... Uh, he didn't have a personal following. He wasn't someone who was a commanding figure even in his own day. And he was easily framed as a man of the past rather than a man of the, of the Victorian future. Well, if Lord Darby is, is, um, has been characterized by Professor Hawkins as mm. uh, the forgotten prime minister and yeah. um, Bonar Law, the 20th century, was... Uh, coined by um, uh, Robert Blake or Lord Blake uh, as the unknown prime minister. What do we call Lord Liverpool? Um, prime minister who resisted revolution. That, that could be a tricky uh, argument that Liverpool was the man who resisted revolution because England never had a revolution. And I'd argue that Liverpool's efforts got, th got England through a series of crises uh, where revolution could have happened. Let me explain that quickly. Uh, during the period of the, the middle years of Liverpool's administration, those from 1815 to 1822, those were some of the most difficult uh, years of any, uh, any prime minister's administration. Uh, it was a time where Liverpool uh, faced social tension, economic tensions in Britain, the post-Waterloo post transition to peace and its economic impact. That was very difficult to navigate. And a couple of points in particular where public unrest coincided with uh, pressures in, the, uh, in high politics to, to make things very, very difficult. The, the Queen Caroline affair in 1820, um, in 1820, uh, when Queen Caroline uh, returned to England uh, to, to to claim her rights as queen, and George the Fourth tried to uh, tried to divorce his estranged wife. That became a political crisis within the government, within uh, politics at Westminster, but it also mobilized public opinion in, in an, uh, an almost unprecedented way. It seemed like a moment, a turning point, where uh, political order would break down. Liverpool did a lot to make sure that it didn't break down. And even after his death, even after his death in 1828, the crises around Catholic emancipation and then around the First Reform Act from 1830 to 18, through 1834, Liverpool had, had established a degree of stability that enabled governments, including the Whig government in 1830 through 32, to weather crisis in a way that might have been much more difficult. So... The similarity between uh, Darby, Boner Law, and Liverpool is they all operated behind the scenes, that they were not front men. The difference is that Liverpool held power for an, ex for an extended period as prime minister and even held top jobs in um, a series of earlier administrations. Uh, so that, that contributed to making him the man who resisted upheaval and brought England into evolutionary rather than revolutionary change. So in essence, uh, your argument is that uh, 
the 15 years of uh, Lord Liverpool as uh, First Lord of the Treasury Prime Minister mm. uh, did a splendid job of buttressing the ship of state sufficiently so that uh, changes which came about in the later 1820s, uh, Catholic Emancipation, and then the subsequent uh, Reform Bill of 1832, um, meant that they uh, were able to uh, be passed on an evolutionary uh, reformist basis rather than a revolutionary one. Yes, he na he not only navigated the the rapids uh, of uh, post Waterloo dynamics in Britain, economic problems, uh, uh, political problems, popular unrest, but he also set out a lasting basis of conservative policy that guided. Uh, that certainly guided Peel, that guided Canning immediately after his death. And his uh, governance provided uh, buffers, as you say, that, uh, that weathered the crises of the, of the late 20s and early 30s. It's important, I'd add here, to look at his earlier experiences. Liverpool was present uh, at the storming of the Bastille in Paris, and he had an acute sense of the dangers that unrest and uh, the emergence of a political vacuum would pose. That awareness guided, uh, guided his decisions as prime minister and guided the steps that he took to buttress the ship of state or to, to uh, buffer the uh, buffer institutions from, uh, from uh, change so that change could come gradually, change could be adaptive, evolutionary, not revolutionary. Can you, going back to the beginning of the book, can you explicate for the audience the change meaning of what was meant by Tory in the lifetimes of uh, the uh, Charles Jenkinson, the first Earl of Liverpool, um, Lord Liverpool's father, as well as himself? Yes, there's, a, there's been uh, a debate among historians about the nature of party. Uh, some have argued that party really only develops from the late 18th century and into the early 19th century. The world of Charles Jenkinson's political maturity when he um, went through Oxford University and then entered uh, the beginnings of his career entering public life was a period of faction rather than uh, what we would understand as party. Uh, what I would argue happened was that there are two categories, two boxes generally of Tory and Whig. And those had persisted from an earlier era of party, a rage of parties that was described under Queen Anne. And uh, from, under, the, under George I and George II, Tories had been largely marginalized. So Toryism became more a matter of sentiment and outlook than what we would understand as an organized political movement uh, seeking office and patronage. Uh, Tories had been locked out for generations, more than a generation or two at least. And the Whig ascendancy that Sir Robert Walpole established in the 1820s also locked out many who identified as Whigs. And the, the, um, the split was really one of court and country by the 1840s and early 1850s. It's only during a period of political... I'm sorry, you mean 1740s, 1750s? Yes, I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, 1740s, 1750s, that's a good correction. Uh, 
It's when the Walpole system breaks down and you have an, a decade of confused politics under George the th- under George the first during the first decade of George the first reign in the in the 1760s. I have to be careful and not say 18 by mistake. Um, that's when you, uh, see- you actually mean George the third. I'm sorry. George, yes, George the uh, third. That's how. Uh, that's the period when and when political identities and political preference. This is, I'd phrase it, start to come in line with organizations. It's uh, the emergence of a group of politicians, the emergence of uh, into the open of, of certain patterns of sentiment uh, to support the kings, George III, and that helps bolster Lord North in office, and it helps put William Pitt the uh, the younger into office during the uh, the crisis over the Fox North coalition when Lord North and Charles James Fox, who were uh, politically very divergent in opinion, indeed they had opposed each other during the uh, 1770s during the American War of Independence. Fox and North joined together with Edmund Burke on Charles James Fox's side to. Uh, Create a, a cabinet, a, an administration, and push their uh, push themselves on George the first, George the third, excuse me, as government, uh, because they had a majority in the House of Commons, public opinion in the country, and the House of Lords sided with the king, and that created a, a, a controversy, indeed a crisis, when Pitt came into power. After George III dismissed the Fox North coalition, Pitt was able to, with support in the country and with support that, that, that reflected Tory opinions rather than the independent Whig views of the elder Pitt and the younger Pitt, Pitt brought into power a new coalition that became the foundation of a second Tory party. Now, it seems odd. Pitt being a Whig, an independent Whig, it's, which has to be, be emphasized here, becoming the leader of a second Tory party. But the way in which people like Charles Jenkinson and others, Henry Dundas, another figure who became very close to Pitt, who's mentioned in the book, they supported and upheld Pitt's administration during its rocky early years. And their influence, their interest, uh, and the interest of those who were of to- from Tory backgrounds became increasingly important from the 1790s and into the early 19th century. So what you see is uh, the irony, in a sense, of an independent Whig leading an administration that became a Tory government, uh, the, the, begin- the reemergence and revival of, of uh, what Keith Filing calls the second Tory party. And part of that dynamic is the fact that people, men who who are in office together and have the experience of working together in government, that builds a unity. It builds a uh, an esprit de corps and a sense of administrative government that provides a counterpart, and I think a neglected counterpart, to Edmund Burke's idea of and justification for party government. 
government in his thoughts on present discontents in the um, in the early 1770s. Burke had argued that men who share principles and who share a vision of the common good should cooperate as a party, not for their own advantage, but to promote their vision of the national interest, of the public's interest. And that was a, a an argument to defend party in opposition, what you see developing, not really articulated in the same way, but seen in George Canning, seen in Liverpool, um, seen later on in, uh, in P- Sir Robert Peel, is a party spirit of working together instead of, instead of acting in opposition, but working together in government to pursue and to promote a shared vision of the public good, of the king's service. And that is as much a foundation of a second Tory party as the opposition ethos that Foxite, uh, first Whigs under the Marquess of Rockingham and then the Foxite Whigs under Charles James Fox developed and carried on through their long period in opposition uh, from the later 18, uh, 17, excuse me, 1780s right up until 1830. Uh, you write that the most important uh, personal influence on uh, Lord Liverpool was his father, Charles Jenkinson. Can you give for the audience a brief synopsis of uh, Charles Jenkinson's career? He had some degree of notoriety uh, with the same, particularly for, for lack of better expression, orthodox Whigs like Burke. Yes. Um, let me just quickly say that Burke and the Marquis of Rockingham we're carrying on a tradition from Walpole, from Sir Robert Walpole, and later from the Duke of Newcastle, that uh, they carried on into opposition much of the court Whig tradition of an earlier generation. Of course, being in opposition adapted that. Um, the elder Jenkins and Charles Jenkins and first Earl of Liverpool came from a Tory background. He came from a high church background. Uh, some of the Jenkins and family had sympathies with Jacobitism. That is the, uh, the movement to support the Stuart claim to the throne during the reign of the first two Hanoverians. The Jenkinsons, or at least Charles Jenkinson and his father were Hanoverian Tories, but as Tories, they were political outsiders. Charles Jenkinson was a high churchman. He originally looked to have a career in the Church of England, but he was also interested in politics. And the way to advance a career was to essentially switch sides and support a Whig candidate. But Charles Jenkinson carried many of his views over when he supported a Whig Whig candidate uh, in the Oxford election of uh, Oxfordshire election of 1857, excuse me, 54. And uh, Jenkinson parlayed the uh, connections he made into an administrative career. He uh, worked as Secretary of State, first to the Earl of Holderness and then to the Earl of Butte. And Jenkinson was a very tidy-minded man. He uh, he had a lot of practical knowledge as well as what we would call book knowledge. He was widely read in European affairs. Uh, he was able to apply his skills and ability to make government work more efficiently and become a kind of commercial and economic ex- expert, as long, along with being the contact point for uh, Lord Butte and then later on for George Granville, the contact point between commercial opinion in London and the prime minister and the government. And this allowed him to accumulate a lot of 
further knowledge, he was the political manager for Butte and then for Grenville. This gave him a skill set as, a, as an administrator and as a political fixer that made him exceptionally useful. And even after he drifted from, from Lord Butte, after Butte fell from power and a break with Lord Grenville, Charles Jenkinson was an incredibly useful administrative expert. So he became drawn into later governments and particularly under Lord North from 1770 as an advisor on both political matters and church matters, along with trade, commercial, and administrative matters. His loyalty after a break with Grenville became primarily to the king, to George III, that he didn't have any political patron besides the king himself. And that made the elder Jenkinson, Charles Jenkinson, uh, the longest lived of what was known as the king's friends. Now, that position brought him some notoriety. People thought that he was uh, described him a secret influence. They thought that he was uh, violating the Constitution by operating behind the scenes, conveying the king's wishes, the king's preferences. He was the quote-unquote minister behind the curtain, and he drew a lot of criticism for that. In reality, those charges were overblown. Uh, Jenkinson was called upon not because he was the king's uh, secret uh, advisor, but because he had skills the government needed and administrative experience the government relied upon in the uh, 1770s. And so the, the, the idea of secret influence became overblown. And uh, Edmund Burke's argument that there was a, a dual government going on, that there were the ministers who ostensibly had the king's confidence, but then there were others operating without parliamentary scrutiny behind the scenes, other advisors like Jenkinson, with Jenkinson being the lead figure in this gallery of rogues that Burke created, uh, that really doesn't fit the facts very well. But it does fit with the the reality of, of Jenkinson's role as to the permanent expert who is also loyal to the king and supportive of the king and had the king's respect. Would it not be true to say that as a young man that uh, the then Lord Hawkesbury was in personality terms, uh, I I believe the expression is, an old man's idea of a young man? Yes, this is uh, the young Lord Hawkesbury, the future uh, Prime Minister, my Lord Liverpool, not his father Charles Jenkinson. Yes, Robert Banks Jenkinson was very much a... uh, an older man's idea of a young man. He at times antagonized his contemporaries uh, and some of his elders by uh, sort of acting beyond his years and being quite assertive in stating opinions, even as a young man, because he'd been been accustomed as his father's son to being around uh, major figures like the younger Pitt, like Henry Dundas, and he had been introduced to the king at a young age. The king remembered him even as a schoolboy. Young Hawkesbury, the future prime minister, Lord Liverpool, young Hawkesbury had a certain awkwardness in manner about him. He wasn't easy. He didn't have an easy charm. Um, And that... uh, created impediments for him. He often seemed in conversation and in company to declaim more than converse. Um, so in many ways, that, that, person, that factor of personality put barriers up to him that he 
uh, tripped over at various stages. And um, it's quite fascinating looking in the in the 1790s at how some of Liverpool's contemporaries and slightly older contemporaries, many of whom um, were his elders and at different points his rivals, uh, would criticize and mock Liverpool. Uh, they they focused on his personal awkwardness and his uh, occasional ineptitude in dealing with other people and exaggerated it to present uh, Hawkesbury as someone who wasn't quite up for things, good at some points. He was a good speaker in the House of Commons, even though he had a, uh, a courtesy title as the son of a peer, Lord Hawkesbury. Uh, after his father became Earl of Liverpool, first Earl of Liverpool, he spoke well in public, but not so well in company. Uh, little slips and mishaps gave critics a point to, to mock him. Uh, there's a cartoon that I uh, use as an illustration in the book that shows uh, Liverpool, well, Hawkesbury at this point, and uh, Henry Addington and a number of other figures uh, who stepped into ministerial roles uh, when Addington formed a government after Pitt resigned in 1800, trying on their predecessors' clothes and not quite measuring up that uh, Liverpool dwarfed, uh, Henry Addington as prime minister dwarfed by uh, the mantle of their predecessors. Um, That wasn't quite true, but it became a sustained line of criticism of of Hawkesbury as a young man, that he wasn't quite up to some of the jobs he was given. And uh, much of that is his personality. He, uh, as I say in the book, he missed social cues. He would uh, sometimes in conversation say things that were non sequiturs. He was physically awkward, sometimes cl- uh, clumsy, tripping over things. And that ho- whole cast gave... Uh, critics leverage to uh, to mock him. Indeed, an an older man's idea of a young man, but also uh, also someone whose minor mishaps could easily be exaggerated and turned against him. What would you say uh, was the initial political worldview of Lord Hawkesbury in the 1790s, and how did it differ from, say, those of his uh, then-close friend, uh, George Canning, or, for that matter, the Prime Minister Pitt the Younger? Well, I would say that, that um, Pitt the Younger and Canning both came out of a Whig tradition. At Oxford, Canning and uh, Hawkesbury were contemporaries and, indeed, close friends, and they were in a debate society together. Canning saw himself as a rival uh, to Hawkesbury, uh, possibly ranged against Hawkesbury in the House of Commons. Uh, Canning had family connections with uh, through his uncle, the uncle who uh, sponsored his education at uh, Eton College and then Oxford. Um, Canning had family connections with the Whigs. Can, uh, Canning knew Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, the subject of, uh, of Amanda Foreman's biography. Canning also knew and was befriended by uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan. The problem that Canning had with the Whigs was that they weren't open to young men of talent like him. 
that uh, there seemed to be a hereditary leadership in various great Whig families with men of talent, like Canning, uh, confined to a subordinate role. Pitt was uh, a man who was very open to, to, as prime minister to promoting talented young men like Canning, and indeed they built a personal relationship. Some of the differences in view, and I'll focus for a moment on, on Pitt, um, Pitt was not committed to the Church of England in the way the elder Jenkinson and also Lord Hawkesbury were, or, or George III. Um, Pitt had a more skeptical early view of the French Revolution, uh, as did, uh, as did Canning. Canning was not entirely unsympathetic from the start. Canning was skeptical of French emigres. Lord Castlereagh, who enters the story later on, Castlereagh had visited Paris and um, he didn't immediately oppose the revolution, the French Revolution. Liverpool from the start saw it as a threat and uh, he saw it. He saw the breakdown of order and the fall of the Bastille symbolized and underlined that breakdown of order, which is a much wider phenomenon than simply the, the, the fall of the Bastille and the massacre of the garrison. He saw that breakdown of order as something that would lead into civil war and then despotism. So Pitt and Canning, at first at least, had a more evolutionary sense of what was going on in France and at first thought that perhaps like many Whigs thought that perhaps France was following England's earlier path to limited monarchy. Liverpool saw instead a breakdown of order that would lead to to civil war and eventually despotism and Liverpool looked at the French Revolution in terms of the French wars of religion from the seventh, uh, from the 16th century and the English civil wars of the 17th century. So that parallel very alive in Liverpool's imagination, uh, and the way he framed conflict in France was not an issue for, for uh, for Pitt and for, for Canning. Uh, the French Revolution became a problem for, for Pitt, for Canning. And for some others in Pitt's government, when it broke the boundaries of France and it became a foreign war, it drew England into a war for European stability in the uh, 1790s. How successful would you characterize uh, the then Hawkesbury as foreign secretary in Addington's cabinet? He was sharply criticized uh, at the time. Uh, I think he was more successful. And uh, other historians, um, including Boyd Hilton, in his study of um, English history, British history, a mad, bad, dangerous people can concur in my judgment. Uh, I think he was more successful than he's been represented. The problem that Hawkesbury had as foreign secretary is that he was given an impossible task. He uh, succeeded in negotiating the Peace of Amiens with France. Uh, England had faced in fighting the French a stalemate, just as the French faced a stalemate in fighting England. The larger problem was that Napoleon could not compel the, the British to terms, nor could the British defeat or compel the French to terms. Continuing the war simply mounted up expense. From Napoleon's point of view, he wanted to give the French people peace as first consul so he could consolidate his position at home before 
extending it through Europe. Uh, the position that Pitt and also Addington and Liverpool faced was to Liverpool then Hawkesbury was to liquidate a war that was costing money without much return. And Pitt, although he had resigned, advised and supported the Addington administration during its early period. Uh, he supported uh, Hawkesbury as, as foreign secretary, gave some advice, and indeed argued for both private and in public argued for the eventual peace of Amiens. Uh, critics of the, of the treaty on the British side thought that Hawkesbury gave away too much. I would argue that there's very little that Hawkesbury gave away. Uh, for example, islands uh, abroad and some concessions in terms of trade that the British couldn't take back when necessary. It was a bet. It was a gamble on peace. The bet failed, but nonetheless, it allowed a, a breather. It allowed Britain to uh, rec to um, to recover from from just short of a decade of war, get finances in order, and prepare for the breakdown of peace as it came, and put the country on a footing to resume war as needed. Uh, George the Third, who accepted the peace on the advice of ministers, but he was very skeptical of, of the possibility of cooperation with France. George III saw it as be, at best as an armed peace, and indeed it became that. Uh, Liverpool also um, mended some other conflicts and, and took some other problems off of the uh, the, the debit side of the political le uh, ledger, he improved relations with the United States, an important point that's lost in the focus on uh, European politics. Liverpool also ended uh, Danish uh, efforts backed by Russia to force an armed neutrality that would limit um, Britain's ability to, to impose a naval blockade, which is an important aspect of British strategy, an important part ability that uh, Britain had used in wars from the the Seven Years' War in the late um, 1740s and early 1760s. So he was pulling liabilities off of the off of the ledger and giving England a chance to recover economically, to be in a better position if war came again. And of course, war did come again. Uh, England had been isolated by 1830. Uh, men Many European uh, powers and the and European public opinion, such as it existed, viewed England in hostile terms, uh, and so did the United States. A point that I make in discussing uh, Liverpool's tenure uh, before he became foreign minister, England, Britain was isolated. Uh, Britain's successes overseas and its dominance in Asia had aroused resentment uh, in the United States and among European powers. Why? Critics, foreign critics argued, uh, should we fight for Britain when it's seeking advantage in ways abroad, in ways that France had done in Europe? Uh, the British seemed to decry, critics said, uh, uh, French ambitions in Europe, and yet the British set up their own empire over the seas and their empire in Asia to the exclusion of foreign rivals. So what's the difference, critics argued, between Napoleon and what the British were doing? Now, events would prove to Europeans, uh, European rulers, uh, exactly what the difference would be, that uh, England was willing to compromise, cooperate, and work as part of a balance of power, whereas Napoleon's only terms were submission.
How would you rate uh, then Hawkesbury's uh, contribution to the uh, future Duke of Wellington's triumphs in the Peninsula campaign? I Hawkesbury was by then Lord Liverpool. He'd succeeded his father after his father had died. Uh, Liverpool was the essential partner to Wellington in the peninsula. He served several functions in this role. One, he helped coordinate the support efforts of uh, the British administration to keep that enabled uh, Wellington to keep armies in the field. Liverpool was uh, Secretary of State for War. But his job did not, or his post did not include all of the administrative departments uh, that worked with Wellington as commander of the British armies in Portugal and in Spain. Uh, some of those agencies were in the Treasury. Some of those agencies were in the Admiralty. Um, and uh, some of those were run separately through uh, a military apparatus uh, responsible to the commander in chief. And. So Liverpool very efficiently ran his office as a kind of sorting box for Wellington's request. He also played uh, a buffering role with the cabinet uh, in terms of buffering criticism from Wellington of what the government was providing and also from the government or questions from the government of what Wellington was doing uh, and a buffering role in Parliament that uh, Liverpool defended Wellington and defended the government's strategy against sustained criticism in the House of Lords. The House of Lords during this period, um, debates in both Parliament, both houses of Parliament were published. Uh, they, they were in the newspapers, both London and provincial papers. Debates in the House of Lords were important partly for that reason that uh, Liverpool had to or, and his colleagues had to answer criticism. And so his answers to criticism, just as the speeches of critics, opposition critics, were widely publicized. So this was uh, Liverpool making Wellington's case both within the government, within the cabinet, to the king and with the country as a whole and, sh and shooting down opposition criticisms. Uh, Liverpool ensured that the peninsula remained the focus for British strategy and for British efforts. One of the problems that Britain had faced from the outbreak of the wars with revolutionary France right through uh, Liverpool, the beginning of Liverpool's tenure and Wellington's campaigns in the peninsula was that Britain scattered its efforts and therefore scattered resources over a variety of different objectives. Liverpool and uh, Spencer Percival's administration, in which Liverpool served as Secretary of War, were committed to focusing on one theater of the conflict. Even later on, when opportunities opened elsewhere in Europe, as the war turned against Napoleon, Liverpool very carefully said to Wellington and argued in the cabinet that we must stay focused on the peninsula. And so the money that Wellington needed to pay his soldiers and most essentially to purchase supplies and to keep his army supplied, to, to pay for transport, to keep supplies and also his army's uh, baggage and, uh, and ammunition and everything an army needs to keep things moving, Liverpool was very certainty to keep that flowing. It didn't flow as a steady stream. It came at at times in fits and starts, depending upon what was available in England. But it gave Wellington enough to 
operate defensively over a series of campaigns and then take the war to the to the French in Spain while supporting Spanish efforts, both guerrilla efforts and the efforts of regular Spanish forces to pressure Napoleon and taking the war to the to the French in Spain played a pivotal role as Napoleon shifted his attentions to the other side of Europe by attacking Russia. Why did uh, the then Lord Liverpool become Prime Minister in 1812? His colleagues trusted him. His colleagues relied upon him. One of the things that Liverpool did uh, from the period of, of stepping down as Foreign Secretary to becoming his colleagues' choice as Prime Minister one of the things that he did was he rebuilt or built his reputation by uh, supporting the governments in which he served and by supporting after Pitt's death, uh, the memory of Pitt and uh, the Pittites, uh, the second Tory revived Tory party in opposition. Repeatedly, Liverpool set aside his own interests, his own ambitions, was willing to take other jobs for the greater good of the administration in which he served. Uh, he and he provided value, provided a very valuable service starting in Addington's administration, but continuing under under Pitt as leader of the House of Lords. So what this means is that uh, those around Liverpool, his colleagues, realized that he was reliable, he was trustworthy, he was able and efficient, but he was also somebody who, who they could trust, they could rely upon to put his own interests and ambitions below the good of the administration, the good of the cabinet as a whole, below the king's service. And there are a number of examples of this. Uh, during the quarrel between Canning and Castlereagh that ended in a famous duel that broke up uh, the Duke of Portland's administration, Liverpool was willing to give up his office to accommodate uh, to accommodate a new administration that would be more fair to 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 Castlereagh, who had been criticized for his management of the War Department, while also making the government more efficient and more effective. That uh, where others were pushing their own claims to lead, notably Canning, notably Castlereagh, and even Spencer Percival, uh, Liverpool was willing to step back and subordinate his ambitions for the greater good. That meant that his colleagues trusted him, relied upon him, and uh, saw him as the most effective figure as prime minister when Percival was assassinated. Let me make another point about this uh, that's relevant. Percival and Canning earlier had both agreed that the prime minister, after the Duke of Portland stepped down, and Portland had been in ill health. He was in many ways largely a figurehead prime minister, someone under whom others could serve, even if they wouldn't serve under each other. Canning and Percival both agreed the prime minister should be in the House of Commons because that's where the most difficult debates took place. They also, by the way, had Liverpool to carry the weight as a debater and as a spokesman in the House of Lords. So it's very relevant that come Percival's assassination in 1812, the cabinet looked to Liverpool, even though he's in the House of Lords, and even though there was a justification for keeping the premiership, the first Lord of the Treasury, in the House of Commons to meet challenges there, they saw Liverpool as the man, as the indispensable figure. 
And in fact, I think up to that time, it changes, oddly enough, the 19th century, which you think of the century of uh, proto-democratization, um, is much more the tendency for the first Lord of the Treasury to be in the House of Lords. Yes. Whereas previous to that, I don't think there was any long-serving prime minister going back to perhaps um, uh, before the Hanoverian succession in 1715, 1714, uh, for a first Lord of the Treasury to be in uh, the House of Lords, usually it's the House of Commons. Yes. I think if you, if you, if you looked at from Walpole through Liverpool, you would find more prime ministers or more years in which the prime minister was in the commons than in the lords. And that, your question brings up an important point, that uh, even under a very much of an aristocratic constitution, debates in the House of Commons mattered, not just votes, but debates. And a prime minister could not speak in the house in which he did not sit. So having the prime minister in the House of Commons meant the prime minister could answer criticism there, which is in many ways as important a function as as administering and and setting policy, that being able to argue the cabinet's line to um, to justify government decisions there's an important point related to this that I think I should make here, and that is that uh, Parliament, the ho- both the House of Lords and the House of Commons, served as much to oversee the executive as to legislate. So that oversight function, that critical function, and as part of it, the, the need for prime ministers to defend measures in both houses, that carries a lot of weight. So it is remarkable that Liverpool, that that the Prime Minister would be in the Lords, where the real fight would be in the Commons. And indeed, for much of Liverpool's Prime Ministership, that that became a persistent problem for him, is finding people who could speak effectively in the House of Commons, because as a peer, he could not. Now, very briefly, let me flip the coin and say that for the younger Pitt and for... um, for the younger Pitt, for Addington as prime minister, and uh, for Percival, the problem was to have a speaker in the House of Lords. Liverpool was the solution to that problem. Even though uh, the Duke of Portland himself was a peer, Portland, because of his age and because of his ill health, did not speak in the Lords. So the burden there, even though the prime minister was a peer, the burden there fell to Liverpool as leader of the House. What was the relationship uh, of Lord Liverpool with the Viscount Castlereagh in the years 1813 to 1815? In essence, uh, the alliance uh, negotiations uh, among the powers opposed to or fighting Napoleon and uh, the subsequent negotiations at the Treaty of of, uh, Vienna, the Vienna Conference, Congress, I should say. Yes. uh, To start with, they... uh, Castlereagh and Liverpool were friends, personal friends and colleagues of long standing. Castlereagh, a protege of Pitt, who has, uh, who as Irish Chief Secretary and as a member of the Irish House of Commons, arranged the Irish Act of Union in 1800. Uh, Castlereagh had joined with Pitt's consent and Pitt's encouragement. He had joined Henry Addington's cabinet, and Castlereagh and Liverpool had served together in successive governments, even. Later, under Percival, when uh, Canning had refused to to serve, had refused to accept office under terms the cabinet and the prime minister would accept. So they so 
Castlereagh and uh, Liverpool have a history together. Castlereagh had served as uh, foreign secretary after uh, Wellington's brother, the Marquis Wellesley, uh, quit Percival's government. Uh, Wellesley had sought to be prime minister himself. So when, uh, when Liverpool became prime minister, Castlereagh considered as, continued as foreign secretary. As the war against Napoleon reached its endgame, the British found themselves increasingly needing a single voice in European councils because uh, European monarchs accompanied the armies, the, the coalition armies that were fighting Napoleon. And although uh, Emperor Franz of Austria deferred to his, his chancellor, Metternich, rather than taking the lead setting policy himself, Metternich's on the spot. Alexander's on the spot. The, Rush, the, uh, the, the Prussian king and the Prussian king's foreign minister and advisers are on the spot. And the allies appeal to the, the British government, send us someone with authority to make decisions. And so the cabinet uh, at at Lord Harrowby's suggestion and recommendation, sent Castlereagh as plenipotentiary minister. He was someone that the whole cabinet trusted, that Liverpool trusted, that the Prince Regent trusted, and he could speak with a single voice. Now, there were differences in viewpoint uh, between Castlereagh and Liverpool, but those differences at this stage were not so great. Uh, Liverpool, and they're more a matter of focus. Liverpool was much more focused on uh, opinion at home, uh, whereas Castlereagh, once he arrived in the Allied camp, I don't give you a specific location because the uh, the the diplomacy of the later years of the war was a movable feast. The uh, the the statesmen followed the armies fighting Napoleon. Castlereagh's focus was on keeping the coalition together, and then avoiding a breakdown of order within Europe. Liverpool was concerned about domestic policy and also overseas efforts, overseas interests, I should say, that Britain had. At several points during the negotiations at Vienna, Castlereagh, with full authority, went further than his colleagues would have liked, indeed further than Liverpool would have liked, getting England into the details, into the weeds, so to speak, of negotiations for a continental European settlement. Before the Congress of Vienna, the British had pretty much gained what they wanted in the first Treaty of Paris in the West European settlement. Things like Poland, uh, questions of the future of Saxony within Germany, these were difficult issues that the, where, the, where Britain was not a uh, didn't have a primary interest, and Castlereagh was willing to go further to support a balance of power within Europe. Liverpool still backed Castlereagh, even where he differed on some of these points. And Liverpool, in a sense, overruled some cabinet colleagues who were concerned, and indeed the Prince Regent, who was concerned that Castlereagh might commit Britain too far. At this stage, the primary concern was to end the wars, gain a stable peace, and, and manage a transition to peace. Liverpool made a remark uh, that's, that I quote twice and that's worth mentioning. War in this period, Liverpool said, would be a revolutionary war. But after a time of peace, war could just be war, a war as it had been before the French Revolution. And so the challenge was to settle Europe into peace so that war would not mean a revolutionary war. And so even where they differed on how far and to what degree Britain should go in managing the details of European peace, they were both committed to getting through 
the war and the immediate post-war challenge? Uh, considering the fact that his relationship with George III was so close and trusting, why was uh, Lord Liverpool's relationship with Ju uh, the son, George IV, so difficult? Personality has a big part to play in, in this point. Uh, George the, the, the Third and uh, Lord Liverpool shared a common outlook. Uh, they shared a common sense of moral purposefulness, whereas George IV was a pretty dissolute and self-indulgent figure. In many ways, George IV, the Prince Regent and future George IV, he was a frustrated interior designer. He was a man of great appetite. Uh, he was a man who chased women. Uh, he was very self-indulgent, whereas uh, George the Third anticipated much of uh, Victorian respectability. So, by the way, did Lord Liverpool and his father anticipate aspects of, of Victorian uh, respectability. So there are clashes. Uh, the reason why for a long time, or one of the reasons why for a long time, the Prince Regent and then George the, George IV and Liverpool got along was they had a common vision regarding the war. George IV was, future George IV, then Prince Regent, was committed to winning the war. His former friends among the Whig oppositions did not share that commitment. So the, the Prince Regent kept his father's ministers and worked with them to end the war, overthrow Napoleon, and facilitate a European peace. The key, I think, one of the key issues that, that divided them after Waterloo was the fact that George the George the Fourth, the Prince Regent, wanted to, a separation from his estranged wife, Caroline of Brunswick, and they really had the marriage from hell. Few royal marriages in any period have been um, companionate marriages, love matches, but usually people make it work. They disliked each other from the start. They were quickly alienated. They separated early on. And uh, George, the, the future George IV, the, the Prince of Wales and Prince Regent's behavior made his wife's behavior worse. She left England uh, after um, the end of the Napoleonic Wars and made a Mediterranean tour before settling in France and getting involved in her own scandals and mischief. Uh, and this just egged the Prince Regent on to end the marriage all the more. And that create the, the Prince Regent, then King's desire for a divorce, created all sorts of problems for Liverpool and for the cabinet. So did the Prince Regent's spending habits. And at a time when public opposition to taxes and to government expenditure had grown and grown. And so it, putting the court on an economy was very important. Now, these things could have been managed, but the fact that the Prince Regent, the future George the uh, Fourth, was self-indulgent, sarcastic, querulous at times. He could be charming when he chose to turn the charm on, but he could be imperious and, and whiny and difficult. That made it harder, especially when Liverpool was not an emollient personality. He was not someone by temperament able to deal with huffs and pets and tantrums and his manner often, even with colleagues, even with, with people who were not self-indulgent or difficult, 
he tended to antagonize people. Liverpool himself tended to, to make mishaps. Uh, my point before about missing social cues becomes important here. So as prime minister, Liverpool relied heavily on colleagues to man Wellington, uh, Henry Addington, who by then had become Lord Sidmouth and was uh, Home Secretary, uh, and Castlereagh to to smooth over difficulties with the Prince Regent, because and then King, because Liverpool himself didn't have the personality to smooth over difficulties. Um, he tended to take offence at things, Liverpool, and so that made him not the man to 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 patch things up where there had been a quarrel. The um with the succession of uh, Canning to Castlereagh in 1822, uh, it's really common or, or common at times to see the, the literature make reference to a sort of reformist or mm. liberal Toryism uh, for the final five years or so of Liverpool's administration. How much of that, A, is correct, and B, how much can that be attributed to um, Liverpool as opposed to Canning? Um. I think there is a shift, and a significant part of that shift is attributed to Liverpool. But the point you have to understand is that uh, Castlereagh himself was pretty liberal. John Bew wrote a very good biography of Castlereagh several years ago that argued for Castlereagh as a liberal and enlightenment figure. Uh, the stereotype is Castlereagh, the cruel reactionary, the partner of Metternich, the man who had uh, who had bought the Irish Union by corruption, as opposed to the liberal reforming George Canning. Canning and Castlereagh agreed on most things. In fact, uh, by the 18-teens, uh, during Liverpool's administration, Canning, when, Liverpool, when Canning rejoined the government as a, as a junior minister, uh, Canning and Castlereagh had the most in common, particularly on domestic affairs. And the quarrel over that led to their duel had largely been forgotten had largely been forgotten. Castlereagh ceased to see Canning as a rival. The shift, where there's a shift, and, and Canning, Castlereagh himself laid some of the foundations for, for changes. The shift lay in a changing situation in Europe. Uh, Canning and Liverpool were both much more skeptical, as I've just said, of detailed involvement in the British involvement in the management of Europe, continental European politics. Uh, Liverpool, because of his position as leader of the House of Lords and as Home Secretary, was very aware of opinion in the country, the opinion of elites, provincial elites uh, within Britain. And he was painfully aware of the arguments made in both houses of parliament against intervention. So Liverpool and Canning are going to be much, much more cautious about involving uh, Britain in continental affairs. Canning, because really from the, the point he arrived uh, at the Allied headquarters and had been responsible for uh, coordinating diplomacy and coordinating policy with uh, Alexander and Metternich and other Allied statesmen, Castlereagh had seen, uh, I wouldn't say he was captured by uh, uh, Britain's allies, but he had seen from the point of view of partners much, much more so than Canning did or Liverpool ever would. And that's the, the, the core difference. When uh, you, continental European 
willingness to intervene in situations, a revolution in Naples in Italy, a revolution in Spain in 1820, when the continental powers became willing to intervene in ways that Britain would not, and certainly that Liverpool and Canning were not willing to do, Britain started to, to, um, to, uh, to distance itself from uh, its wartime allies. Um, relations and cooperations that had made sense uh, during the war didn't fit after 1820. The 1820 memorandum that Castlereagh actually drafted with the cabinet's endorsement and cabinet's commentary uh, argued that Britain could not work against democratic movements, uh, that British support for intervention to keep European peace was support for uh, intervention against a situation like a Napoleon rising to power, uh, aggression outside a country's borders, rather than the rise to power of movements within a country's borders. So Castlereagh, before his death, was already moving away from close cooperation and close coordination. Uh, Canning had always been more suspicious, Liverpool also more suspicious of that. And the issues in European politics in 1820, 21, 22, that brought the distance between, and it brought that shift to, uh, it's often described in terms of liberal Toryism that, uh, that has long been described as canning, or rather Castlereagh illiberal, canning liberal, they were both pretty liberal. And it's the changing patterns within um, European European politics that lead to the distancing that uh, that Liverpool and Canning uh, promoted. And in fact, of course, uh, both uh, Canning and Castlereagh, alike Liverpool, were in favor of Catholic emancipation. Yes, that's a very good good point. Uh, Castlereagh and Canning supported Catholic emancipation. Liverpool did not because he saw the role of the Church of England within the Constitution as essential. And so changing that, breaking that monopoly that the Church of England had, what would, uh, would undermine the balanced 18th century Constitution. That uh, Even though, interestingly enough, Liverpool was not unsympathetic to the Catholic Church and to uh, Catholic belief. At one point in debate, Liverpool said if it was the religious opinions of Roman Catholics that were at issue, there would be no issue. The issue is a divided allegiance, he argued, and the fact that Catholics owed allegiance to the Pope as a foreign ruler and not a full allegiance to the King. Liverpool also saw the established church as part of the balanced constitution along with uh, the, uh, the, the, the crown and parliament of king, lords and commons. And uh, to change the position of the church would undermine not only the church's um, spiritual authority, but it would also remove one of the temple, temporal pillars of uh, the 18th century constitution. How much was the collapse of Tory party fortunes after Lord Liverpool's forced retirement in 1827 predetermined and how much of it was fortuitous? I think, well, there was a lot that was predetermined in the sense that uh, groups within the government did not get along, that uh, Liverpool had become the keystone in the political architecture because he was able to keep, well, for two reasons. One, he was able to keep 
uh, both groups, one, a group around Lord Bathurst, uh, Secretary of War and Colonies, Liverpool, and the Earl of Eldon. I'm sorry, not Liverpool, Wellington and the Earl of Eldon. He was able to keep them in line with uh, a supposedly liberal Tory group of Canning and William Hoskisson and uh, Frederick Robinson. But also, uh, so he's able to keep them working together, but he's also the keystone in the arch because neither side could agree on a replacement. You're back to the situation under the Duke of Portland where leading men would not agree to serve under each other. Liverpool was the acceptable alternative. The difference between Liverpool and Portland is that Liverpool actually had a very strong hand in administration, in management, in government, and in defending the government's measures, whereas Portland, in his second administration, was largely a figurehead. Indeed, in his first administration, Portland had been a figurehead. But Liverpool's not not just the leader of the government, but he's also filling a space um, like the like the uh, filling a space on the chessboard that uh, nobody else could fill without others dropping out. And it's when after Liverpool's uh, forced resignation, as you phrase it, after Liverpool's stroke, when uh, Peel and Wellington refused to serve under Canning, and importantly. Uh, George the Fourth refuses to uh, to uh, simply allow Peel and Wellington and their supporters to impose a choice upon him. That's when the two sides separate. And so after uh, the administrations of, of Wellington's, um, I'm sorry, not Wellington, of Liverpool's successors. No leader can bring the other side of the revived Tory party onto their side. And so that forces successive governments at different points to rely upon Whig support, opposition support, and also to have a very uh, shaky position. Reading the book, one almost uh, is forced to see uh, Lord Liverpool as the last of the great political parliamentary undertakers, to employ a 17th century phrase, in a sort of straight line from Walpole to Pelham to Newcastle to the younger Pitt. Would you agree with that assessment? I would. I think that's true. But I'd qualify it by saying, and Liverpool recognized this himself, and and Wellington made the point, uh, he was the last great undertaker without the patronage resources to perform that task that uh, the dismantling of the fiscal military state uh, and pursuing what Edmund Burke had, had advocated as a, a reform, as a kind of uh, administrative and financial reform of dropping uh, government offices and sinecures, of cutting out a lot of the political patronage through pensions, through jobs, uh, particularly jobs, that were sinecures. They carried a salary, but they didn't carry much responsibility, or they carried responsibilities to be done by a deputy uh, who would be paid only a fraction of the salary. Those those resources were not available to Liverpool as they had been to his predecessors, this earlier line of men from uh, Walpole through Newcastle. And so Liverpool had to do a lot more with a lot less. It's interesting a point to make about Liverpool's relationship with the Church of England. Liverpool was a very morally serious, he was a high churchman, he was also very morally serious, and he was committed to the good of the church. And he emphasized merit and also 
orthodoxy in church appointments. What that means in this context is that church patronage was not available to him to serve political ends. And that diminished the resources further. So it's, it's worth also noting that over the course of the long wars, the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, the, uh, the British state expanded. There were more jobs. There were more um, pensions. There were also more government contracts. But in the five years after Waterloo, six years after Waterloo, the government dramatically cut all of that back. So the means of patronage doesn't exist, and that made it all the more difficult for Liverpool as the last of the great undertakers uh, and also for his immediate uh, – for his successors, for Canning, for uh, Wellington, and then later for, for Peel. You had to start governing in a different way. If you wanted people to take away one thing from this book, what would it be? I would say that Liverpool is the bridge in many ways. Not only is he the uh, the defender of England's old order, Britain's old order, and, and the prime minister who, who resisted revolution and ensured uh, evolutionary change, he's also the bridge between an old 18th century world and uh, – the Victorian world, both the Victorian world I've alluded to uh, of uh, moral earnestness, of morality, of propriety, of ser- moral seriousness, but also the world of Victorian laissez-faire. So Liverpool is the man who in many ways carries on, as you just said, the tradition of the undertakers. He carries on uh, a, a Tory tradition rooted in the late 17th and 18th century, carries it into the early 19th century. He defends the 18th century balanced constitution, but he also lays the basis by dismantling the fiscal military state and by promoting commercial reforms, by dismantling mercantilism, uh, the mercantilist system of the law of, of the 18th century. He, he lays the foundation for commercial growth, for uh, economic laissez-faire in the 19th century. And uh, what historian Norman Gash has said, a line of, of conservative policy that uh, Sir Robert Peel would apply very effectively as prime minister and in many ways others would pick up. Um, it's interesting that even though William Gladstone was famed as a liberal prime minister, Gladstone st- started out as the uh, as the rising hope of the stern, unbending Tories. What he car- what Gladstone carried with him into his position as a liberal was uh, aspects of economic reform and economic orthodoxy and a support for laissez-faire drawn from Peel and, and through Peel from Liverpool. And so that's an important running theme in the 18th century that may, in the 19th century, excuse me, me, that makes Liverpool the bridge from the old world to the new. I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much.